Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of Tea and Fiction. I'm your host, Iming Piancai, and today we have a special guest and one of my dear friends, Russell Morris. Russell is a New York-based writer and Barry native. His writing has appeared in Rolling Stone magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, Salon.com, and where this whole thing started, New American Media. Recently, Russell published a book of short stories about his life titled Holy Name. Welcome, Russell, and thank you for uh, coming on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Amy. So, Russell, tell me a little about your book. Where did this idea come for Holy Names? And actually, I thought it was interesting that you're on your website. The first thing you list is like all the things people have called you in life. Like the first thing you see on your website is like all the negative things people have said about you. Or not negative per se, but negative-ish. I get a lot of backhanded compliments. I guess you could say it that way. I mean, the Village Voice described my writing by saying it was really pretty good. You know? Are all these What are the quotes on Problem Child, Live Wire. What else is on there? Uh, cocky, Bad Boy, uh, Quirky. Well, that's <laughs> not an insult. That's, those are, that's high praise. This guy's either awesome or cocky, completely intolerable. Boy? We'll see. That's true. That is true. I hope everybody I I laughed when I read that one because that, that was entertaining. I mean, I'm interested in accuracy. I reprinted, I reprinted the quotes that I felt were accurate. Maybe oh. not the highest praise. But they, they seem to have hit the nail on the head there. Hmm. Did you but I mean, that? a lot of that has to do, some of those quotes are about my p- public persona based on my time on the reality show on MTV, right. Right. which is just a, a, a different version of, of a human, still right. a part of me. Right. Uh, and some of that is praise for my actual writing, you know, right. because as much as, you know, people may have been turned off by my public persona on that show. They were forced to read what I wrote because it was a show about journalism and it was good. And and that, you know, the fact that that was undeniable. And even if I may have been a truly obnoxious public figure, I was a good writer. I'm OK with that. Obnoxious person. Good writer. Hey, you Put it on my tombstone. Somewhere. No, that would probably be something more poetic, like a Joan Didion quote, like the one you put on your book. Maybe. Perhaps. Um, no, but my original question was before I forgot about the other thing was that uh, I think your website said you wrote three books, including this one. What happened to those two? Um, the first two were chap books. So they were limited release. Ooh. They were in connection with projects I worked on while I was in the creative writing program at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a, my great secret, which I will reveal here to your listeners. Um, one of them is a book of poetry. Oh. And neither did I. (laughs) It's one of my many secrets, but it's perhaps my most closely guarded secret. I have a lot. I got beef with poetry. Okay. I'm just going to put it out there. I got beef with poetry. Why do you have beef with poetry? It's a weird thing to have beef with. Out of all the things in the world, you have beef with poetry. There's a lot of art in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And by extension, there's a lot of bad art in the world. Mm -hmm. But there's no bad art worse than bad poetry. Mm. I, I Maybe you could put that. that. You could put that on my tombstone instead. Maybe that's a better one. There's no worse worse um, art than bad poetry. Yeah, and I think part of it is that people don't take poetry seriously. Like people think that it's this easy art form because right. it's like, oh, you don't have to use punctuation or line breaks, and they're short, and and a poem can be anything. So you attract a lot of people who 
are not taking the craft seriously and writing a lot of trash. I'm not on here to like, you know, clown poets. All right. But I understand. the reason I am not always in a hurry to identify as a poet, even though maybe that's what's going on really at the core of my soul, uh, is because I think poetry has a bad name and uh, I think it's, it's misleading, but that, that first chat book was called Aztec moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was based on a dream I had where I was on a, a space shuttle with my mother. We were supposed to be flying to go to the moon. And then as soon as the space shuttle took off, it crashed. Uh, then we finally booked another flight. I made it to the moon and I had this like profound spiritual reckoning with the people who lived on the moon. I, you know, it was a really intricate, bizarre, beautiful dream that had all these resonant implications about my relationship with women and my relationship with my mom, my relationship with God, all these themes that I'm really interested in anyway, right. themes that are definitely present in holy name. Uh, but I wrote, I wrote them in a very science fiction poetic way, right? This is, it was not prose. It was not a narrative. It was pretty off the wall, but I liked it. I'm very happy with it. If you like, I can send you a copy. Sure. Uh, the second chapbook was, um, an experiment in flash fiction, very similar in some ways because it was also science fiction, but uh, it was called a, a science fiction jail memoir, Dead Time. Uh, and it was all about time travel. You know, the idea was like, once you invent a time machine, what's the point of jail? Because mm. if time if time travel exists and you get locked up, wouldn't you just travel forward to the time that you're going to get out of jail, right? This mm. was the... <laughs> This was the central premise of Dead Time, and it's kind of a joke, but it's really inspired by a lot of the work that I do. In um, I'm in jails and prisons a lot just because of my my career in um, criminal justice advocacy work. Right. And the smartphone has changed prison. You know, that's like number one contraband. It used to be like number one contraband was like weapons and drugs. Now it's just like no, we can't let people access the internet. You know, that's like. The most important thing and i thought oh, that's 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 fascinating right because if you could access the internet like who cares if you're in prison mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you could go online like what you would just basically be socializing with as many people as you would anyway sure you have to suffer the indignities of prison but it certainly recontextualizes it so i i extended that to the idea of time travel it's very freaky i don't think very many people liked it i liked it so how did this book come about holy name like what was was it like you were writing like maybe one of them and then it kind of became a, a collection or what what was the process for you like well you know when i was in uh the creative writing program at columbia i was in the creative nonfiction department there's a lot of memoir there uh i was exploring non-memoir writing because i thought well god we can't all just write about you know when we lost our virginity or like when our parents died or, you know, like (laughs) some of those memoir themes get exhausted pretty quick. But I I am interested in telling true stories and I am, I think that I, I can do effective self-exploration writing about my life and experiences in my life. So I did write a lot of memoir when I was in that program. Mm -hmm. I never wrote it consciously. I never thought this Mm -hmm. is part of a larger whole. Um, You know, I I took scenes uh, and and you see that in the book. You know, these are pivotal moments, right? What's a pivotal moment in my life? Oh, I I broke out of this 
juvenile juvenile facility when I was a kid, stole a car and went on the run. Right. That's an important moment. It's still with me. I can still smell every moment of that. Uh, and I think it says a lot about myself as a person and the way that I related to people at that time and my conception of freedom and human conceptions of freedom. I, I just I that story feels relatable to me. Not everybody was locked up when they were a kid, but I think most people when they're teenagers feel like they don't have a lot of control over their lives and mm -hmm. they have this very dangerous and wonderful impulse to break free of everything. And I mean, that's just one example. So I, I explored a number of different moments without the necessary intention of stringing them together or forming a narrative. I, mm -hmm. I, I took these as snapshots right. and I wrote a lot of other stuff when I was at Columbia and then I finished school and I thought, I wanna move on from this body of work. I'm happy with the things that I did here, but I wanna move on to other writing projects. And I've done all this revision with this stuff. And I just wanna look at this work and see what of it is good, what of it is could potentially be worth sharing. Mm -hmm. And originally I thought it would just be a collection. It was like, oh, a collection of stories. And maybe I would put some journalism in there and you know, some stuff that wasn't first person or stuff that wasn't memoir. But when I looked at the strongest pieces, I realized two things, one, the strongest pieces in here by far are our memoir of everything that I wrote when I was at Columbia. Right. And two, if I choose the right pieces, there's a narrative there. You know, there, there's, there are themes that run throughout these stories. If I sequence them properly and I make a couple adjustments, um, this is, you know, this is a lyric memoir. This is one work. Uh, and then I spend a lot of time editing it and changing the name yeah, but that was the inception and in, i think it's one of the i think it's the second essay you have or can i call it essay is that okay um what, 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 second what, chapter I chapter guess. okay What's um, the name of it the quiet room i was curious when exactly that mm -hmm. took place because i wasn't sure so that was after you were in a, you were locked up right and then they sent you there yeah yeah, I mean, my experience in the juvenile justice system uh, brought me to a lot of different facilities. I was at Youth Guidance Center in San Francisco, which is, you know, the San Francisco County Juvenile Hall. Um, but you can't serve a sentence uh, at Juvenile Hall. You know, it's kind of like county jail where it's like, that's just where you're waiting while they're figuring out what to do with you. Right. Uh, and I got a couple of, you know, they sent me to this ranch way up in Northern California, which is, you know, another story that I will write one day near the Oregon border in the mountains, uh, an apple orchard, you know, I, my responsibility was to redo the irrigation system, uh, all kinds of crazy, you know, they, it was a sheep farm, strange place. Uh, I got kicked out of there and sent back to juvenile hall. And this place that I described escaping from is the second place I was sent to serve my sentence. It was in Santa Rosa. And I don't know, I, I got locked up more or less for good in January of 1997 okay. and I went to this place in the spring so I'd been I'd been at YGC for several months so so that means when you got out and they they found you and they brought you back it's not like they're adding anything to what you've already done because there is no like sense of time served right oh yeah yeah that's uh well it's funny you should ask because that was the origin of the phrase Dead Time, the name of my flash fiction book, huh. uh, because when you're sitting in jail waiting to get sent somewhere, at least in the juvenile system and in some counties, they call it dead time. It's like, oh, this doesn't even count towards my sentence. You know, like 
in order for me to resolve my charges in juvenile court, I would have to like go to one of these places, complete the program and get discharged, right? However long I sat waiting at juvenile hall counted towards nothing, dead time. Um, for me, one of the most vivid parts of that was when you and what was his name were were running Gustavo. away, Gustavo, and you were running away, and you were trying to get a car to start, and it was just very—I don't know—it was just very visual for me. The tension in your writing, which I really appreciated. Like I've known you for like fourteen years, and I've never seen you write personal pieces like that. At least not that I've seen. So I thought this whole, like, the journey of me reading this book twice was very interesting because I've never seen you write like this before. At least nothing you shared with me before. Yeah, I mean, this is a departure. Like I said, I, I was very interested in journalism and reporting when I was at New American Media, uh, PNS, Yo, all of those iterations, and, and commentary. You know, I was like, oh, I can write an op-ed. Let me get really good at writing a commentary or a column, you know? So there's a lot of me in there and I mm -hmm. draw on my personal experiences, but there's not a lot of searching. There's not a lot of emotional vulnerability in right. those pieces. There's, you know, more about my own story or my own experiences. Uh, and, you know, I, when I came to the creative writing program, that was, that was the experience I had in writing. I knew how to write 800 words about, you know, a school shooting the next day uh, and offer some relevant insight and talk about my experience and talk about what it means in society and, you know, throw it down a well and never think about it again. Uh, it's a very different process in, in creative writing school. You know, you have to really meditate and you have to think about, well, you know, what's the emotional resonance here? Uh, and I was very glib as a writer at Yo! and New America Media, which I, you know, I think was a strength. I, I'm not dismissing that, but it's a very different style of writing. Right. Uh, and, and I thought I would just show up at Columbia and be like, yo, I've had this crazy life. I'll just write what happened and everyone's going to love it. And that's, that's not true. Thankfully, that's not true. You know, uh, I had a, a professor early on who said, um, you know, all of, all of these stories need to have a greater emotional resonance mm. or a greater social relevance. Mm. Otherwise, they're just bar stories. Right. And I, I was horrified. I was like, well, what do you mean? What's wrong with bar stories? That's what I came here to write. And that was a, an important lesson for me. You know, I need to search for the for the emotional resonance here. I can't just say like, yo, I, I broke out of this group home when I was a kid. I was crazy. The end. I need to talk a little bit more about being scared and what freedom meant and and who i loved and how i felt about myself and that was a learning process um you had some really really good lines my father died not too far from champion throat wrestling his last breath in a small cream brick house by the lake as in most mother-son dramas god the father is off stage i literally sat there for like 20 minutes reading that line over and over again because it was <laughs> fascinating to me <laughs> I'm so glad you have that response. I love that line too. I, that's exactly what I mean about resonance. I mean, that's the where those two things meet, right? I said like, oh, I'm not a poet. I don't want to identify as a poet. But like, if I'm really being honest about what's in my soul, it's like, yeah, my my aspiration is that every line and every word choice is, has poetic elements and illusions and metaphor. And I, I love I love those lines. I love that essay. 
that that piece that first chapter you know i i really like that style of writing and very often i have not gotten good response a lot of times people are like i don't understand what this is about it's much easier for me when you tell a story with the beginning and middle and an end right. uh, but i it's there you know there are things my, my brother says this about like artists on art you know like when when a when a painter is being interviewed and they're like, oh, tell me about this piece. Oh, well, I'm talking about, you know, betrayal and what is the sensation of betrayal? And I see betrayal as orange. And if you, you think about what is art and, you know, it's like my brother says, if you could explain it, then why did you paint it? You know, like if if you could do just as good a job talking about what you're trying to convey with your art, then why did you write it? Why did you paint it? And I like I like ambiguity and I like inhabitable metaphors and I like freaky stuff. And, and, you know, I think that first chapter, I, I wanted to have that be the keystone for the whole piece. You know, what's in there. I didn't know my relationship with, with my mother. There aren't that many other references to my mom in the rest of the book. She shows up in another chapter briefly, but I did want to establish that, you know, our, our protagonist here, you know, like my character in that book is, you know, he's wounded, he's sad and, and, and feels unloved. And that might be his, his rosebud, you hmm. know, if you want to, if you want to do a Citizen Kane reference, right? Like just like you watch this person unfold in pain and, and be self-destructive and, and experience considerable loss. And I think it helps to understand that that loss, those broken relationships, like they, they had a, they had a genesis. They had an inception uh, in the home, you know, which is where all of this starts for all of us anyway. Not, you know, in a Freudian way. I mean, I guess, yeah, in a Freudian way, but um, that's where we learn how to be sad. Mm. <laughs> you, I, I thought you were very su successful in, like, setting a tone because, um, like, I can't remember where that was. I think it was ch the second chapter where you mentioned you and your mom going to watch the Virgin Suicides. And do you remember making me a mix with that song like ages ago? It was back when like, I, you I and me and Josue like, were exchanging like back when we still I used to. I remember Head in the Oven. Yeah, we used to, CDs. we exchanged. Oh, yeah. I forgot that was the title. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah, I. Yeah, because well, you would, we found out that you and I both had an affinity for like really sad music, right? Yes. Uh, and I thought, oh, great. You know, I was like, but but watch out. You know, because if you start playing with me, if you really want to hear my depressing tracks, like I'm not going to hold back. This might be the thing that pushes you over the edge. So we made all these jokes about like, oh, I'm going to call this mixtape, you know, head in the oven. And this one's going to, you know, so we made a lot of uh, a lot of suicide humor. Guys, get it? <laughs> OK, fine. But yeah. I when you mentioned that particular song, uh, playground love, it like sent mm -hmm. like I could feel like the room shake and like. It, the song like passed through my body and it like immediately set the tone for like everything else I read after that point, just because that song was just so vivid in my my memory. So I think you did a really good job in like basically creating a soundtrack in a way, like just with, with the idea of that one song. I thought it really like grounded the for me as a reader in whatever was going to happen, and a lot happened in that story. So I thought that was a really neat thing that you did there. And I thought it was, it, it worked. It worked because then everything else is just like, damn. Your girlfriend, Sheila, uh, she, yeah, Sheila, she was shot by SF cops. And then you were, it was not good for you. 
<laughs> so I thought yeah. that I thought that was a, a really good setup for at least kind of preparing you for what is about to happen. Because personally, like I I've heard stories about what happened with you. I um, mean, what you heard wasn't accurate. Yeah, like I feel like I've heard different things, and so some of them didn't correspond with what I read. And 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 in some ways, it's interesting because in that moment that you're writing it, you're kind of writing it with not knowing a lot of information. Like you're not knowing how she died. And then you're slowly getting information because the, the people where you're at are kind of um, keeping that from you. And as a reader, you're also just, you're getting drips and you're getting drips. So it's like you're kind of on the same level as your reader in that moment, which was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you, I'm glad that came across because it was very intentional. I wanted the reader to have the same experience of, you know, receiving this information that I, as I did at the time when I had limited to no access to media mm-hmm. you know um and i i had to just like steal newspaper clippings where i could to to find out what happened to this person i cared about who was on the front page of the paper for months and months and months um and i you know i think the way that i experienced it was unique and it it had a certain effect on me i experienced her death differently than if i had been out in the world and just heard about it and could talk to all my friends about it and could watch television and read the newspaper. And I I experienced it alone. You know, I experienced that grief alone. And in a lot of ways, I think that is reflective of a lot of other experiences in my life, you know, loss and grief. Uh, I think that's mirrored in a later chapter, you know, um, about my dad and his, Mm -hmm. his, uh, fail. And I, you know, that's part of that is just who I am, you know, as a person. But, you know, you see that in the first chapter, right? In Our Lady, what happens? Mm-hmm. Like, my mom kicks me. I'm a little kid. What do I do? I run to my room and just like sit there and cuddle with this little piggy bank, you know? Uh, like I said earlier, like, you know, where, where do we learn how to be sad? Where do we learn how to grieve? You know, at home. And I didn't feel like I had allies there. And um, I learned early on um that sadness is a is is alone time you know mm-hmm. and that just kept happening uh throughout my life i gotta say i was kind of mad at you during some part of that when you talked about how your i guess your current girlfriend at the time uh fiona tried to like get she lit a fight and you kind of just cut it off there like you didn't say what happened but you, didn't, but you said you didn't do anything i was like why is he not sticking up yeah. I was really pissed off at you when I read that. Yeah, it was a very immature and selfish thing to do. And I, this story, even more than the others, I felt like I have to be honest. You know, I kind of, this is where the, the Didion quote comes in, right? Like we, we tell ourselves stories in order to survive. Um, that's the beginning. I, that's a quote in your book, just so we're clear. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I had a very like practiced and rehearsed version of this story that I told people. You know, oh, like when I was a kid, my girlfriend got killed by a police officer and a police officer lied about what happened. And, you know, I loved this girl and this was a really traumatizing event. And she was the person I would have spent my whole life with. And I always loved and cherished her. And, you know, that event is what politicized me. That's why I started doing criminal justice advocacy work and and became involved in criminal justice work. And that, you know, that's a rehearsed story but it's not a true story right you know it's not it's not a true story the true story is much more complicated and i was not 
very nice to Sheila or as nice as I could have been. I was nice in some ways and not nice in other ways. And my response to her death was not political. My response to her death was teenaged, right. you know? Oh, what is she? She was with some other guys. Like, you know, who, who are these other guys? And, and what does this say about me? And, and in some ways very small. Right. You know, right? Like I this this horrible tragedy, this this girl loses her life and I'm kind of thinking about myself and that's it's bad, you know? But it's also very human and I I it was important for me to be honest about that. Uh and I think I learned an important lesson about writing and truth in writing, especially when you're writing about yourself uh from a friend of mine who referred to a coworker. Yeah, we had this coworker who's kind of like, you know, a cool guy, you know, he's he's always whatever, drinking a beer and he was in the Marines and telling a story about something that happened in Iraq or whatever. And, and my friend was like, oh yeah, you know, that guy, he's always, he's, he's always the hero of his own stories. Uh, and I was like, oh yeah, that's not, that's not a good thing to be. Cause it's not true. <laughs> you know, it's not relatable, right? Like we're not the heroes of our own stories, really. You know, we are right in the sense that we're the protagonist, we're the main character maybe, mm-hmm. um, but we're flawed. And we don't respond to things the way that we wish that we had. And I think it, there's more there for readers. There's more that's relatable. If I can talk about being petty and small uh, or just personal, you know, I wasn't ready to make that leap to the political yet. You know, there, there are lines in there where I was like, I didn't care anymore about the detail of the facts of the case. You know, like I stopped, I stopped following that. I didn't watch the civil trial for this police officer. I just kept wondering, like, what did this person mean to me? And what does it mean that I lost her? And uh, what is loss? You know, those are those are my real questions. And do you feel like you were finally able to kind of accept what happened to her after you, you know, the initial grieving that you went through? Um, I mean, there are, there were a lot of phases. And, you know, this was part of a much longer story. I, I cut this in half. Yeah, the story picks up 10 years after her death uh, when I met another girl who was Sheila's best friend when they were kids. And we started to date. We were adults, you know, we hadn't seen each other in 10 years. And we felt bad. We were like, oh, are we doing a bad? Like, it sounds silly, but we were both, we were two people who had never really shared the grief of that loss with someone, suddenly sharing it with each other intensely all the time. Like, even though it had been 10 years, we talked about Sheila all the time. Mm-hmm. And we talked about ghosts and we talked about divinity and purpose and meaning and the afterlife and loss and death. And and that was a re- really a cornerstone of our relationship, of our love mm-hmm. was grief, that specific grief. And part of that was feeling like, oh, are we doing something wrong? Because you were friends with her and we had this relationship again it sounds fun it's kind of funny but we were very serious about it and we wanted to make sure we were doing the right thing and there's maybe i'll go back and revise this chapter and release it in another way because this other information is relevant and interesting but we had this kind of magical metaphysical moment where like a rabbit appeared and we interpreted the rabbit's presence as like her presence and there was another instance where this this girl whose name is Rachel, when we started going out, we went to go put balloons at the site where Sheila died on the anniversary of her death. And while 
Rachel was crossing the street on Slope Boulevard, she was not paying attention. Cars go really fast on Slope. Right. It's a major thoroughfare, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, a car, she wasn't paying attention. She almost got ran over. Uh, very seriously, too. Not just like a kind of close call. She was not looking at the car. And it was coming at over 60 miles an hour. And I just yelled her name at the last second. And she stopped. And the second that she stopped, this car, I mean, it was like just past inches in front of her. Her heart stopped. You know, she saw her life flash before all the cliches about near-death experiences. So there are many, many moments like that about Sheila's presence and Sheila's ghost and, and this relationship and that, that I did not include in this version of the story. I thought about that a lot, but I I don't know. I, I guess I've, I don't know when, when you accept things. I have experienced a lot of grief and a lot of loss in my life and I guess I feel better about, I accept Sheila's death now more than I ever have, but I don't know. I don't know if I fully accepted it. It still seems very wrong. I feel like I just made a, I just, I just sucked the air out of the room with that question. No, no, this is uh, central to the book. This is what I wanted to try and convey. And this is what I want to talk about. These are the questions I was trying to get to. Um, and I'm very interested in this and I don't feel re-traumatized. You know, a lot of times when people experience grief, it's like hard for them to revisit it and talk about it. Right. I don't experience grief that way. I definitely want to talk. You know, a friend of mine lost his dad recently and I, I felt so fortunate to be his friend at that time and go through that with him because we were able to talk about it together. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I like to talk about this stuff. It's helpful for me. Do you think grief sometimes pulls you in, in or sets you kind of like in a, a negative space? And maybe um, it's a good way to put this. Um, how has the, the grief that you've experienced with, with like your father and Sheila, how has that kind of approached the way that you write now? Like now that you've kind of, kind of uh, changed it, in this particular project that you did, you kind of um, changed the scope of a, to a more emotional range. How do you think you are dealing now in your writing with that, with those feelings, with those experiences? Do you feel like you've kind of cracked a window for yourself in a way where it's easier to like talk about stuff in a more cohesive way than say not? Um. I mean, you know, if I really think about it, it's probably easier for me to think and talk about grief because I've written so much about it because I've forced myself to answer these questions. How do I really feel about this? What do I really think about Sheila's death? What do I really think about my dad's death or any of the other number of people who die or disappear in this, this book is full of ghosts. And that's something that I changed my writing in a way that a lot of people at Columbia noticed. You know, they, people said this, not in a critical way, but in a way that people are like, hi, this style is so interesting. Like people just float in and out of your life and they're gone forever. You know, like right. somebody comes in, leaves a really profound impact on you. And then boom, I never saw him again. You know, Gustavo is like that, right? Like we bonded as closely as two young men could, you know, the intensity of that friendship. And then one day he went out with the car and never came back. I, I have never seen or heard from Gustavo since then. I, he could be dead. He was in prison until he was 25 as a result of mm -hmm. that night. I, I, you know, I don't know. The same thing about, you know, Chase Treas is in this book. Mm -hmm. Like 
you know, and there's a scene of him fluttering away. He's on a motorcycle and his ponytail's fluttering in the wind. You know, it's the last time I saw him. I don't know. I think somebody said he's in witness protection. I don't know if that's true. But people, you know, and I think I think not everybody has those kind of experiences. I think that that is unique to experiences I've had in my life, right? Like the kind of friends that I've had, the kind of places that I've been, things feel very temporary. And, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, what what is the personal effect on me? How does that come across in the writing? You know, I can be very detached, you know, like when I'm talking about tragedy, I don't linger, or I don't get angry, or I don't talk about like, oh, I wanted to rip a hole in the sun and I cried out to the heavens, why, you know? Uh, instead, you know, my dad dies and I'm just like standing there at Niagara Falls, just like looking at the water right before it drops off, you know? I, and I don't know if that means that I have uh, some kind of like profound understanding of life and death, sunrise, sunset, you know, uh, healing the sacred hoop or whatever, or if I've just become so wounded by loss and grief that I just can't have the same level of, of feeling anymore. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. But, but th that tension is what I'm talking about in here. Like what, how, how am I supposed to feel? You know, I don't know. I couldn't cry at Sheila's funeral. What does that mean? I don't know. Sometimes people can't cry. But as a person who experienced a lot of loss and had no one to share that with, maybe that had something to do with it. Um, despite the fact that a majority of your book kind of deals with loss, your last, your last chapter is actually really hopeful. And it was really, I'm not going to say it was jarring, but it wasn't what I was expecting. And I just wanted to, I was curious, like, what made you go in that direction for the, the final, like, piece of this? When you and Sophia are like, you leave, you leave your apartment and you're like wandering around and you eat something. What did you eat? You ate something that was laced with something. We accidentally took acid. That's what there happened. This was the accidental acid trip. Unknowingly, maybe. And you go into a church and you see the, the fireman's outfit, like, on the floor, like, the guy had like fallen through, fallen through, and then you're out in like the yeah. the cemetery, just kind of hanging mm -hmm. out. And you look up and you see your apartment. You're like, how are we gonna get back up there? So it was, it was just it was it was just it was it was a different um, feel, at least from everything else that you had written so far in that. And I was just wondering, like, what what made you change the the theme in a way? Because I felt like you were like almost going not not full circle. I'm not gonna say that, but it just seemed different is the best word I can think of right now. Yeah. I mean, that last piece is very, very different from the other writing in the book for a lot of reasons, but thematically, like the, the thing that you're zeroing in on uh, is intentional. You know, I, I am not a pessimistic person. We've spoken about this a few times in the past couple of weeks. Uh, I, I believe in, in redemption and I believe that people and the human experience and all of that, and there's this, there's inherent good. I'm always looking for human redemption. It affects my personal life. You know, I work for a public defender's office in Harlem, and I'm always looking for the humanity in people who have been accused of things that might be, um, you know, deplorable even because I'm looking for humanity and people that's very interesting to me. And I am also not a person who's prepared to resign my worldview just to say like, well, 
people come, people go, nothing matters. Everybody dies. Uh, we're all alone anyway. You know, that's not really, that's not my worldview. And I, I don't want to live that way. But I feel that way sometimes. And I think a lot of the book is just acknowledging like, yeah, I do, I do feel alone with a lot of this. And uh, grief is sometimes feels unendurable and until it's not. And then when it's not unendurable, you become a shell of a human and you're unable to form meaningful relationships with people because you're so wounded by loss. But that's not the end of the story for me. Uh, I am a romantic. The last story is a story about falling in love, you know, and the like actual literal healing power of love. And I, I couldn't think of a better way to convey that than accidentally taking acid with someone and having it be a wonderful experience. When I tell most people I accidentally took acid, they're like, whoa, yikes. Sorry, man. Uh, and the experience was not like that. It was because of the person that I was with. And you know, it's because of our relationship and the way that we felt about each other and our levels of all those electromagnetic beams we were shooting back and forth at each other all the time just by virtue of being in love were suddenly visible mm. because we had the help of mind-altering substances. And it made grief all right. It made, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't like this story because it's about 9-11, right? People are like, oh, we don't want to hear 9-11 stories. I don't know why people don't want to hear 9-11. I love 9-11 stories. I, I think public grief is important. I don't think tragedies are good. Obviously, tragedies are horrible, but... You know, like uh, even small things like uh, Prince dies, you know, and people are like, oh, man, I love Prince. Prince was the man. Let's all listen to his music together and talk about how great he was and how sad it is to lose someone who's great. I like those experiences. And I think there's real value in that. And it's kind of, again, thematically what I'm talking about, like grieving publicly and grieving privately and just feeling very alone with grief and sadness and having that moment, you know, whatever, like hallucinating the soul of a, a firefighter from 9-11, like floating up into heaven. Like that's a, that's a pretty glorious hallucination, you know? Uh, I, and it didn't make me sad at all. It made me understand the whole human experiment in a way that maybe I haven't had as much clarity on since then because I haven't taken acid. But I like to think that I, you know, peeked behind the curtain and saw like, well, this was terrible. This was the site of a terrible thing. And indisputably, there's no, you can't argue against that. This was a risk, the site of a real tragedy. But like, I saw something here that's like a little magical and a little special and like makes it okay. And that's what, you know, that's what good eulogies are about. You know, when people talk about someone who has died, you're supposed to talk about how sad it is. And then to talk about how like, well, hey, but like, Let's talk about the fact that we're sad is a good thing because there's there's a person worth mourning here. You know, there's an element of magic. It depends, you know, whatever your belief system is. You go to a funeral uh, in a, you know, a, a Christian church and they're going to talk about how this person gets to go be with Jesus now. Like, finally, they're reunited. And that's a happy thing. Um, and I don't I don't think that, you know, whatever people talk about reincarnation, whatever, you know, divine intelligence, energy, like whatever stories we make up about, about afterlives first of all, are not pure fictions, in, in my opinion. And second of all, um, like they do some real work for us. You know, this, that's, that's Didion. You know, we tell ourselves stories, right? Like in order to survive. We don't know what happens when we die. It's terrifying. The, the only thing we know for sure as humans is that we're going to die. And we don't know what that means. That's the human condition. Uh, but we've come up with these wonderful explanations of what it might be. Uh, and I got to hallucinate and incorporated some of my, you know, Catholic orthodoxy and 
cartoons that I had seen and you know movies about angels into an experience that kind of made death make sense to me and resolve a great personal tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's there's power in that, you know. And it was very important for me for the last line of this book to not be something about. You know, well, that's it. So I stood at the end of this uh, Niagara Falls thinking like, well, maybe I should jump in. Like, why not? Uh, That's not a different book. Yeah. You know, because I have these experiences all the time. I feel differently about the world every other day. You know, I sometimes I'm just like, I just can't I can't hang anymore. This is ridiculous and it's pointless and I don't want to try it. Not to mention I am just not good enough, whatever, you know, and then the next day. I'm just like shooting lightning bolts out of my fingers and I'm, you know, I, my, my opinion of myself is through the roof and um, I, I see an old man, you know, snacking on some famous Amos cookies on the train and I want to cry because it's so symbolic of, you know, how wonderful human beings are. Uh, my emotional life is like a, a, a roller coaster in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm sure somebody could probably draft a diagnosis for some kind of mental illness for me based on that characterization of my experiences in the world. Uh, But it's true. And I just want it, you know, I want my most recent swing to be the good one, to be the one where I'm like looking at that guy eating his cookies on the train. I'm just like, oh man, you're beautiful. You are a beautiful human being. You're everything that's right about humans, you know, and I want to cry about it and then run off the train and write an essay. And those are the good moments. And I think those are the real moments. I think when we think everything's terrible, we're lying to ourselves. And I think that when we're in the zone, that's the real, that's the truth. That's the real stuff. So that's why you talked to me so much when I was younger. (laughs) Like, stop being so sad. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta talk you back from the ledge, man. I, I know. <laughs> well, I know I looked like I was miserable. I'm pretty sure I was. You didn't look like you were miserable. It was just you were just like a smart 18 year old. If you're if you're a smart 18 year old and you're not miserable, I, who are you? <laughs> that's part of it, you know. People say if you're not upset, you're not paying attention. You know that that's usually used to talk about political stuff. Uh, I think it's true for emotional experiences too. If you're not sad, you're not feeling. Wow. That's a really powerful statement to make about sadness. It's probably correct. I mean, not all the time. I don't, I'm not only, you know. If you're not sad, you're not living. I think that's true. You know, I don't think you should be sad all the time. I'm not like emo or something. I just mean like, that's, that's part of the range, man. And, and there are a lot of trials in the human experience and it doesn't matter if like you were locked up or, you know, all these people you knew died or if you're just like a normal kid who's just sad because your parents are divorced or you live in a stupid town or whatever, you know, like all that, that, that pain, that sadness is universal and it's the source of a lot of good art. <laughs> yeah, that right. Um, quick little detour from sadness but are you have you ever thought about doing a um like a fictional short novel of some sort in your creative writing future that's not well it's funny you should ask because uh the quiet room was originally written as a piece of fiction oh 
Really? It was supposed to be it was supposed to be the first chapter in a novella, which was going to be a fictionalized version of my experience breaking out of that um, facility and being on the run. And then it ends with the character in a psych hospital. Mm -hmm. But I only wrote the first chapter and it was really draining. Fiction, um, I, I had a, a professor at Columbia, a nonfiction professor, and she was just talking to people in general about like, oh, how did you choose nonfictions and that, you know? And one of the students said something like, oh, well, nonfiction, I did. writing true stories just makes much more sense. You just like sit down and you write what happened. Uh, and, and the professor was like, my God, I know. She's like, I've tried writing fiction. I don't even know how to get a character from one side of the room to the other. You know, like if if you're writing a description of a fr your friend going from one side to the other, you remember, you know, he sauntered from one side to the other. But if you're making it all up, who knows what kind of walk? How, how should you describe that walk? Did he amble? You know, did he limp? Did he glide? I, I don't know. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> what was he wearing? Uh, but that said, I am very interested in fiction. I think one of the reasons The Quiet Room is so strong is because I wrote it as fiction and then switched everything back. Uh, and that might be an exercise I engage in uh, for future writing. Uh, but I'm also interested in fictional elements anyway. Like I said, those two, the, the poetry chapbook and the flash fiction, they were both science fiction. And I still am very much, I mean, I know people roll their eyes and groan when whenever people mention, especially young men mention Kurt Vonnegut, but I, I sorry guys, I love Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and I, I think that the way that he used science fiction to talk about human tendencies and social tendencies is great and not to mention humor so i you know i read other science fiction not just vonnegut but i like that kind of stuff you know i would like to you know write a science fiction novel i'm working on a comic book now really by yourself which, or is, with... which is science fiction no Josue and i are working on it okay i never i, I never knew you were a science fiction person until now uh, yeah, very much. I mean, it was big in my home. My dad and my brother were really into Star Trek. I was less into Star Trek, although I was kind of just exposed to it. So I didn't have much of a choice. They were also both really into comics. And I got some of that through them. It's big Star Wars house. So I grew up around all that stuff as part of the mythology, like just as much as like, okay, like I would go to church, Catholic church with my mom on Sunday, and then like come home and my brother would be like, all right, we're watching all three RoboCops. Let's go. Um, so they were... I don't whatever, man. That's just what you did. <laughs> it was the nineties. All the things to just default to Robocop. Yeah. Okay. That's an example of the kind of thing <laughs> my brother would want to do, you know. But I'm thankful to have that exposure because I mean I heard a friend say this recently about a, a mutual friend who was an art history major. And she was like, Oh my god, I never went to church when I was a kid. I don't know anything about religion. And there are all these people in the art history program who like, you know, went to Catholic school, they know what every painting is about, <laughs> you know, because so much art, so much of art history, Western art history is, you know, from the Judeo-Christian tradition and the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I feel very lucky to have that in a literary sense, right? I have, you know, was an altar boy and went to Catholic schools until they kicked me out. Um, 
and you know went to church my whole life i still go to church so i have you know when i'm writing literature i know like hey man we're getting some real strong cain and abel vibes here mm. <laughs> you know let me zero in on that or whatever you know is this story about job who can say uh but in the same way i'm very grateful to my father and my brother for kind of having star trek and star wars and and the marvel universe and DC uh, in the air my whole childhood because I can draw on those themes and structures in writing and in life and in my conception of the human experience. You you use women in your life as very specific plot points. You have your mom that that starts things off that off when she leaves leaves you and your family. You have Sheila, Sheila and Fiona, which also fall under the same category of loss. You have Daffodil, who um, pops up really briefly when in regard to your dad's health. Um, who, who kind of also goes into the into the whole idea of loss and love. Um, and then Nilu's talking about the right before the execution. And by the end, you, you have Sophia, and it seems like you're trying to aim to be hopeful and happy. Like, despite how horrible things are, you kind of use these women as like a um, a bridge between two different realms of thought. And was that an intentional thing that you did or was that just kind of how it happened? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it was intentional. You know, there's there's a lot in that first chapter, Our Lady, um, which is about my mom and the Virgin Mary. So it's about moms, I guess, you know, but that's the first woman you really get to know pretty well. Again, you know, without like being true Freudian, you know, those that that relationship informs all your future relationships a lot of time. And I don't know, I think in, in a lot of those romantic relationships, I was trying to like reconcile or, or find something in those relationships that I felt was lacking in my relationship with my mom. And I think, you know, that's not unique to me. I think a lot of other people do that. Um, but I liked to think that throughout the book, that there's some evidence of personal growth and healing based on these different relationships, right? Like the way that I interact with Sheila and the way that I think about Sheila and treat her is different from the way that I interact with Daffodil. And, um, you know, I think there's certainly in, in the case of Daffodil, um, you know, like I mentioned before, most of my life grief was like a personal and a private thing. And I was sad. If I was sad, I was alone. I wasn't sharing that with someone else. Um, but that wasn't the case for Daffodil. You know, I shared with her that my dad was dying and she talked to me about her own relevant experience. You know, she had experienced her own loss. It was very similar. And it, we, that was the foundation of our relationship and that, you know, had a huge impact on me. But I also, let's say, at least in the context of this book, wasn't ready for that yet, right? Like this is too much. It's too much for me to be close to someone that I'm having this emotional vulnerability with and who's treating me as an adult. And I, I must sabotage this. Um, and, and that's what happened. Um, and then, you know, I think 
you get through other relationships and you finally get to Sophia's character in the last chapter. Um, and there doesn't seem to be as much reservation, you know, there is some kind of like divinity there. There's a closeness that transcends these other relationships. And, you know, the last chapter is about just the purity of um, romantic love. That's kind of unencumbered. I, it felt like, I think I wrote it in a way that I experienced it, which was, this is unambiguous. I'm in love with this person and this person is in love with me and all of our petty human experiences aren't, can't undermine it, you know? Uh, and that's its own form of like special redemption, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, there's a lot to say if I'm really going to be honest and like whatever one day write a book about all of the romantic relationships I've been in and I, you know, there's a lot more there to say the least mm -hmm. if only just more people but i liked those flashpoints it was not by design you know initially i wasn't thinking like oh well who's going to be the girl of this chapter i just noticed that as i talked Get the about out start spinning the wheel <laughs> yeah but i just thought about like what were you know i kind of have that habit um i have had a lot of really meaningful relationships with people and those were the people i was willing to share with those are the people that i acted out with or against or uh and it was just a, a really good way to illustrate my own growth or where i was in my life at that time i mean you know the other person that you didn't mention is davina oh yeah she's she's the girlfriend in the quiet room mm. And all we know about her is that I've been hurt by her, you know, but that I still miss her and want to be with her. And, you know, there are echoes there of the first chapter and my own feelings about my mom. And, you know, in the next chapter, we find out that she's left. So, you know, a, a lot of these are mirroring each other. And uh, I, I like that. I like that, that that's the nature of these relationships and that, that those characters are consistent in that way. Well, I really enjoyed your book. If I can say Thank that. you. Where is it um, purchasable? Well, if you're in San Francisco, you can get it at Green Apple Books in in store. Uh, it should be available at Dog Ear Books in San Francisco as well. Um, my printer and publisher is Shakespeare & Co. Uh, which is in New York City. They have a website and you can contact them and they'll they can print you a copy on demand and send one. Yes. Or uh, or you can Venmo me. Russell Morse on Venmo. Send me uh, if you want a signed copy, send me twenty dollars in your address. And I would like to hope to hope that, you know my signature would increase the value of the book. Unfortunately, yeah, not right. until you're dead, Russell. I'm not saying you should die anytime soon, but that's probably what's going to levitate the price a little bit. I don't think so. I think signed <laughs> copies are more valuable <laughs> than signed copies. I'll write your name in it, whoever you are. Future reader. <laughs> well, thank you, Russell, for joining me. And I appreciate your very, 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 very thorough breakdown of your book. 
Uh, thank you for having me. This has really been a pleasure. Mm. Mm.